So to catch you guys up, if you did not come last week, if this is your first Sunday, if you're kind of like, who's Ruth? Why are we talking about this Redeemer language? Then I will quickly catch you up. This is a story that is actually a pretty big deal. It's in the middle of the Old Testament, right after Joshua and Judges and before First and Second Samuel. And we're going to be looking at Ruth chapter 4. It'll be on the screen, but if you want to pull it up on your, uh, I jokingly refer to it as analog Bibles. Feel free to do that if you have the paper one. It's going to be in the, the first half. If you have a digital Bible on your phone, that's what I'll trust you're looking at. And you're not looking at scores of games or checking fantasy football or anything of that sort. Um, but basically, we're in Ruth chapter 4. And to catch you guys up, Ruth is a Moabite widow. Her mother-in-law's name is Naomi. And they just suffered the loss of Naomi's husband, uh, Ruth's husband, and Ruth's brother-in-law. And Ruth is basically this woman in need of redemption. Can you go back a slide? I want to look at the picture of Ruth for a second. In chapter 2, Ruth is doing this thing that we, we hear sometimes. Uh, she's gleaning. She's gleaning in a field, and it just so happens to be in this field that is owned by this man named Boaz. Boaz is this man that... that he has worth, he has fields, he has influence, he might even have power. And basically, he was following God's law so that Ruth could glean. Basically, what God told the people, his people, the Israelites, was that they were supposed to allow orphans, widows, and immigrants to glean off of his fields, off of their fields, because basically God was saying, you got to trust me that I'm going to take care of you. Now you're actually going to have more than enough food so that the leftovers that are left behind, you don't need to worry about. And Boaz very easily could have said, I don't want to do that. In this book, it says that they had just gone through a severe famine. So it would make sense from a human understanding to say, I'm going to get every last little stalk of wheat or barley off of this field, and I'm going to store it. I'm going to do my actual Costco run and just slam that pantry full of stuff because I don't want to be caught behind off guard with the next famine. But instead, Boaz chooses to be a righteous man, to do what God says, and to allow this woman to glean off of his field. And what would happen is they would harvest, and they didn't have combines. They probably had a scythe. They're probably doing it all by hand. And they weren't necessarily terribly efficient. So there would be leftover stocks. And God said, hey, let these orphans, these widows, these immigrants come behind and take the leftovers so that they too can survive. And in this way, Ruth had this glimmer of hope. We don't know a ton about Ruth. And what I've shared over the past couple Sundays is that drives me crazy. I love really good stories where people bring you in and there's all this character development and you know all about what's happening with these characters. And you literally feel like you're knowing what's going on in these people's minds. But in the, the verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3, Elimelech dies. Like, oh, so we hear about a guy and then he's dead. Like, well, that's, I didn't get to know him very well. I would kind of wish, was he a good guy? Am I sad? Or is it kind of like, hooray, he's dead. That guy was a bummer. I, we don't know. Basically, all we know is that the status Naomi had in the ancient world was gone. And then we also read a couple verses later that Ruth and Ruth's husband and her brother-in-law also died. So therefore, she is without status and they're in need of this thing called a redeemer. And the way the ancient law was written is that basically close family could be redemptive. They could once again give them status. They could do it in a couple of ways, but primarily through marriage. 
So Ruth is gleaning on this field, and she notices this man named Boaz, and in chapter 2 is what I jokingly refer to as the meat cute. I imagine that they're reaching for the same grain stock, and then their eyes meet, and then it's love at first sight, because this is supposed to be a love story in the Bible. And so Naomi goes ba- or Ruth goes back home and talks to Naomi and says, I met a boy. And then Naomi's like, tell me all about the boy. Oh my goodness, was he cute? And they probably have a whole thing where they talk about it. And then Naomi starts to conceive of this plan. She says, you know what? Let's get you very, very clean and perfumed smelling. And let's get you very presentable. Let's, let's do your makeup just right and put on the best whatever wardrobe they wore back in the day. I don't think they ironed it or dry cleaned it, but maybe they tried to wash it real quick. I don't know. But Ruth does something in chapter 3 that could be perceivably scandalous. On the threshing floor, where the, that, that's basically where they're processing what they harvest, Boaz was sleeping, and Ruth went and laid near him and uncovered his feet. And that was scandalous. Because in that moment, Boaz could have, and I told a joke last week. I told a joke last week, and I said, brown chicken, brown cow. If you don't understand what that means... Basically, what I was trying to insinuate was that there was an opportunity for inappropriate relationships to take place. And some of you in the audience got the joke and literally died of laughter last week, so I won't point anybody out in particular. But anyways, Boaz could have taken advantage of the situation. Boaz, this man of stature, this man of influence, this man of means, could have taken advantage of the situation, but instead... He continued to be this righteous man. He continued to be this person that was doing what God wanted him to do, continued to be in this position of being a redeemer. So at the end of chapter 3, Boaz says there's another one that's actually closer. There's, a, there's someone that is a closer family member to you who actually has legal claim to be a redeemer. There's someone that could actually make your situation right. And through all this time, what we see in all this discussion of Redeemer, and we see this struggle of Ruth to just find food, and we see Boaz, who didn't ask for any of this, continue to remain faithful to God, we simply see this amazing God working through some ordinary life circumstances. We see that Ruth, while she was bold, while she was a little bit brazen, while she was willing to do some things that might have been perceivably scandalous, we see her being this almost ordinary hero, and I don't say ordinary in a negative way. That word describes something we might think less of than we should. As a culture, we don't necessarily celebrate ordinary. See, the book of Ruth doesn't contain giants being slain. It doesn't have seas being parted. It doesn't have massive ships being built and filled with animals. It doesn't contain megastructure towers. It doesn't have any of that. It's simply a woman who lost her husband, and is trying to eke out a living. That's very relatable. That's very ordinary. But I don't think ordinary is bad. I don't think that's a negative description. Because I think God is honored through the ordinary in this story. I think he in turn weaves his redemptive work through, through our ordinariness, through the ordinariness of the story, through people simply making good decisions, living the way they're called to do simply behaving. Sure, it might not make the news. It might not be on the headlines on the papers. Boaz does a good thing. 
if Boaz like killed a person, then it might make the news. But no, Boaz just was following the rules, and that's probably not something that would be sensational enough to be put out on all the news media, on the papers, over social media. But I think God is honored when through the ordinariness of our lives we remain faithful to him because then he in turn is able to weave his redemptive work in our lives. And we get to be part of this amazing story. And that's what's going to happen at the end of this short book of Ruth. We're going to see how Ruth plays a much bigger picture. She's a, she's a part of a much bigger story than we might have realized at first, unless you guys read the whole book and spoiled it for yourself. Some of you, I've jokingly said, don't read the end yet. Because there's a big plot twist. And so I'm like, I read it. Sorry. Spoiler alert. Don't ruin it for everybody else. All the people that read ahead that were extra studious. I know it's a short book. Anyways, we're in chapter 4. And we just read Boaz telling Ruth that there's someone closer. And he goes and finds that person. And he gathers witnesses from the town because that's customary. They, they need to actually have witnesses. They didn't necessarily sign on dotted lines. They didn't like forward each other electronic contracts to sign the initials and sign their lives away. They just did this in a public way, and there was actual witnesses, which made it legal and binding. So Boaz goes and gets these elders, and he sat them down, and he says, sit down here. In verse 3, um, Boaz says to the Redeemer that this woman, Naomi, has a field that he can buy from her, that he can redeem her, that basically he can be the instrument of redemption for this woman. And he's offering this person the opportunity to function as the redeemer. And this is his response. At the end of verse 4, he says, I will redeem it. But then Boaz says something that's very interesting. And we have to read between the lines here for a little bit. But on the day when you buy the field from Naomi, you also buy Ruth the Moabite. For the record, it's a package deal, just so you know. The wife of the dead man, in order to preserve the dead man's name for his inheritance. But the Redeemer replied, then I can't redeem it for myself without risking damage to my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You can have my right of redemption because I'm unable to act as the Redeemer. Now see, I have to read between the lines here for a second. I have to read between the lines because I have to assume that maybe in chapter 3... Ruth and Naomi's little plot to get Boaz to notice Ruth worked. And maybe, despite the fact that Boaz was this righteous man and he wanted to completely follow the law, he was willing in that moment to say, maybe I don't get to marry Ruth. I'm going to have to follow the rules. I'm going to have to follow God's law and say to this other guy, you get to <coughs> have first shot at being the redeemer. But you have to marry Ruth. And maybe if we read between the lines... Boaz knew that this other redeemer didn't want to do that. Maybe it's because she was a Moabite and he didn't like Moabites. I don't know. Maybe there's some sort of beef there. Maybe he was already married. Maybe there's all sorts of issues that we don't know about. But Boaz was still following God's laws and commands. And he was still playing by the rules. But it seems to me that Boaz knew what he was doing. He's like, you can redeem it. Oh, by the way, Ruth is part of the package. Just as a little aside there, real quick. And I find that interesting because it kind of shows a little bit more of this Boaz guy. It shows that, that he, he's smart, he's righteous, but he also seems to be very intrigued by this woman, Ruth. And he wants to be part of her story. He wants their stories to intertwine together. 
Set. So the redeemer replied, then I can't redeem it for myself without risking damage to my own inheritance. I'm unable to act as a redeemer. Verse 7. In Israel in former times, this was the practice regarding redemption in exchange to confirm any such matter. A man would take off a sandal and give it to the other. This was the process of making a transaction binding in Israel. Then the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he took off his sandal. Very interesting. Could you imagine buying a car by taking your shoe off? I want that one. And you just chuck it at the car or something? I, I just think that's interesting. It's just, it, that's, it has nothing to do with anything. I just wanted to point that out. But what is going on here is significant because this becomes binding. This is legally binding now. This is an official transaction. This is all about legally redeeming. He is buying on her debt. He's taking on her as this person that depends on him, as a dependent, as the IRS would call it. If he had to fill out some W-4s, he could now put a 1 next to, do you have dependents? Like, this is a legally binding thing that Boaz is doing. So in this moment, she is redeemed, and Boaz announces it in verse 9. He announces to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I've bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech. And all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. So he's buying three debts of three different men. And also Ruth the Moabite, the wife of Malon, I've bought to be my wife to preserve the dead man's name for his inheritance so that the name of the dead man might not be cut off from his brothers or from the gate of his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Boaz says some interesting things. He's talking about inheritance, genealogies, bloodlines. That actually might be one of the main reasons that scholars suspect this book was written because of, because of this exact issue that Boaz is talking about, inheritance, bloodlines, genealogies. It shows that Ruth and Boaz would eventually have a son, and that son, later on in this chapter, we can read that that son was Jesse, and that the son of Jesse was eventually David, King David, the giant killer, so basically, Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David. What's more interesting is Boaz was a descendant of Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho. Thus, David's great-grandmother Ruth was a Moabitess, and his great-grandfather Boaz was part Canaanite. The chosen family within the chosen nation thus was Canaanite and Moabite, had Canaanite and Moabite blood in its veins. So it seems fitting Seems fitting what would happen after this, and we'll talk about it in a moment. But Ruth plays part in this grand narrative, and it's not just the four chapters that make up Ruth, but this entire story. Ruth plays this integral part within it. In verse 11, all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord grant that the woman who is coming into your household be like Rachel and like Leah both of whom built up the house of Israel. May they be fertile in Ephrathah, and may you preserve a name in Bethlehem, and may your household be like the household of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the children that the Lord will give you from this young woman. They're already talking about kids. It's like it's foreshadowing something. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He was intimate with her, and the Lord let her become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, May the Lord be blessed, who today hasn't left you without a Redeemer. May his name be proclaimed in Israel. 
He will restore your life and sustain you in your old age. Your daughter-in-law, who loves you, has given birth to him. She's better for you than seven sons. Naomi took the child and held him to her breast and became his guardian. The neighborhood woman gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They called his name Obed, and he became Jesse's grandfather and David's grandfather. And so the end of this story is the generations of Perez. It's this genealogy. It's how Ruth, this Moabite, and Boaz, this redeemer, fit into this amazing story that maybe I could complain a little bit about not knowing who Elimelech is or who all these other guys are, but it really didn't end up mattering because the star of the story is this woman named Ruth who was bold and brave, and through her ordinary circumstances, God was able to weave his redemptive work in a way that continues to work in our own lives today, generations after this book occurred. What's interesting for me is the question, is this a good story? Because at the beginning, I talked about this series with you guys, and I said, this is short. We don't know a whole lot about Ruth. We don't know a whole lot about Boaz, but we know that they play a very big part in the biblical narrative. We know that they play a huge part in what this book focuses on. And we'll talk about that in a second. This is the final spoiler alert about Ruth. But when we talk about stories, when we talk about movies, sometimes we see, oh, the characters weren't believable. Or when we watch a TV show, we say, it's captivating. The story engages me. Or, or when we read a book, we say, the detail is so amazing. I feel like I'm there and I can see everything. And sometimes we can read the Bible in the same lens, but we must understand that the book of Ruth isn't necessarily written to entertain us. The book of Ruth is written in a way to show us how God can use even a Moabite, even an immigrant widow, for his redemptive work. We can also see that Boaz, who despite not needing to, who despite not asking for it, decided to continue to be a good person, to be righteous, and that God also blessed and honored that. We can say that this story is good simply because God weaved together the faithful obedience of his people to bring about the redemptive purposes, his designs in this world. Because a story that maybe should have been wrapped in controversy ended up being about a God who works in our ordinariness. A God who does amazing things with people that are normal. That's nothing bad. Sometimes we, we just focus all on the grandiose, on the supernatural, on these amazing things, and we overlook the simple, the struggle of a woman named Ruth who was just trying to feed herself and her mother-in-law, and how as a result, God interjected her into one of the greatest stories of all time. But we can't help but ask ourselves in reading this story, knowing that it's not just for our own entertainment, but because it speaks to us about who God is and how he works in human lives we can't help but ask ourselves, how does this apply? What do we take from this? And I think one of the questions we must ask ourselves in reading this book is, how faithful have we been to God? Because if this story is a, a story about people being faithful and how God blessed that, then naturally it makes sense to me to ask the same question of ourselves. More or less, I would say we live ordinary lives, and that's not bad. That's good. Sometimes... We live in a society that champions success in weird ways by notoriety, 
by how many people bought a thing, how many people spent money on a thing, by whether that movie made this many millions, whether that YouTube video had that many million views. We celebrate grandiose and sometimes we set aside the normal, ordinary. And in, in one way or another, we can let ourselves be fooled to believe that God can't use us, that we don't have anything to offer, or that it doesn't really matter, so we'll just do what we feel like doing instead of listening to what God may be asking us to do. So the question would naturally be one of how faithful have we been to God through our story? Particularly during this Thanksgiving season, it is one, it's one thing to say thanks to God, but another to trust him implicitly, just like Ruth did. Ruth put herself out there and had to be redeemed. She basically was in a position where she was a foreigner in a foreign land, and she was basically saying, I have to be saved. God is going to have to redeem me if I have a future. She couldn't do much else for herself. She had to trust implicitly that God was working through her story. And same with Boaz. Having this random immigrant woman who's a widow say, hey, you want to take on all my debt? Sounds really cool, right? He could have said no. Said, no, thank you. I don't want any part of that. Instead, he trusted God as well that this is what was supposed to happen. He said yes. He remained faithful, and as a result, God's amazing redemptive work would continue to unfold throughout the rest of this book until a man named Jesus. What's interesting about this story is that it is directly connected to Jesus, who starting next week we eagerly anticipate the coming of. The season of Advent is a time to look forward, to prepare, to anticipate the, the um, coming of a Savior. The Savior being born of a virgin, that's what Christmas is about, is this anticipation, this excitement, this Redeemer is coming to redeem all of us, and we get to be excited and look forward to that. And Jesus talked about living an ordinary life. He talked about being faithful. He talked about trusting God. And Matthew, can you go to the Matthew scripture real quick? Jesus talks about worry. That's the wrong one. Well, I'm going to have to read it then. In Matthew, here, go back to the slide before that. In Matthew 6, Jesus specifically talks to us about worry, about trusting in God. He tells us that we can trust God with our ordinary lives. In verse 25 of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds in the sky. They don't sow seed or harvest grain or gather crops into barns. Let your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than they are? Who among you by worrying can add a single moment to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? Notice how the lilies in the field grow. They don't wear themselves out with work. They don't spin cloth. But I say to you that even Solomon in all of his splendor wasn't dressed like one of these. If God dresses grass in the field so beautifully, even though it's alive today and tomorrow it's thrown into the furnace, won't God do much more with you, you people of weak faith? Therefore, don't worry and say, what are we going to eat or what are we going to drink or what are we going to wear? Gentiles long for all these things. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. 
Instead, desire first and foremost God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. I find it a beautiful connection because what Jesus is calling us to do is what Ruth and Boaz were already doing. They weren't worrying. They weren't crying out. What am I going to do? They were simply trusting, being faithful, knowing that God actually cared, that God knew, like it says in verse 32, knew what they needed. And as a result of their faithfulness, his redemptive work was able to transform lives. So imagine for a moment, though, imagine if, if Ruth or Naomi or Boaz decided instead to be like us and worry. Be like us and be stressed out about the things that are, are simple things, the normal things. What if Ruth gave in to worry instead of being bold and saying, you know what? I'm going to do this and I'm going to trust that, that God is in it and that he will provide redemption for me. What if Naomi let her bitterness become all-consuming to the point where she said, men are dumb, they're going to die anyways, don't waste your time, Ruth. It's not worth it. <laughs> Maybe she said that, I don't know. But it didn't take. What if Boaz decided not to trust God and said, no thank you. I have enough to worry about. I'm looking at my harvest intake and, and I don't have enough. I don't need to take on more debt. No, thank you. But instead, they were faithful. And God cared for them. Just like he cares for birds and flowers. And he also cares about you. And he wants what's best for you which is how his redemption works. But it only happens when we submit, when we let go and when we say yes to God and follow his leading instead of trying to think like Jesus so beautifully says, how in worrying do you think you're going to add a day to your life? Thinking that we have something else to add to it to, to make our situation better, like we have control, like we have a say, like we can be the masters of our own fate in some way that's supernatural. The story of Ruth is ordinary, but, but not so normal, but still ordinary in that Ruth is a hero because in her, in her ordinariness she remained faithful, not because she killed a giant or went toe-to-toe -to -toe with countless foes or split the sea or gathered animals on a boat, but because she did something astonishingly simple. And incredibly difficult. She trusted in God's providence. She even stuck her neck out to do so, left her home, and went to a foreign land, not only receiving redemption for herself, but becoming a permanent part of our redemptive story, our story of redemption that we celebrate year after year. Next week, like, like we've already discussed, is the beginning of Advent, the time we anticipate the coming of a Savior, and Ruth plays an integral part in that story. In 2 Samuel, there is this prophecy, and it's on the back of your bulletin. In 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, it's foretold that, that Jesus will come, and he will be of the line of David, that he will come from David's house, that David's kingship will be forever established, it will never end, that essentially... The Messiah will be born of David's house. And what we just saw at the end of Ruth is that 
She is the great-grandmother of David. Oh, I have it up there. I'm going to read it then. When the time comes for you to die and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your descendant, one of your very own children, to succeed you, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a temple for my name, and I will establish his royal throne forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Whenever he go does wrong, I will discipline him with a human rod, with blows from human beings. But I will never take my faithful love away from him like I took it away from Saul, whom I set aside in favor for, of you. Your dynasty and your kingdom will be secured forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And this woman gets to play part in that prophecy, in that story. Because Jesus is of the line of David. And this, this prophecy given to the prophet Nathan by God to go tell to David is fulfilled in sections like Luke. And this is on your bulletin. I don't know if I put this on the screen or not. But in Luke chapter 3, 23 through 38, we see a genealogy. And every time we would come around Christmas time, or every time as a teenager, I'd read the Gospels, I'd look and say, who cares? Who was the father of who? I don't care. This is so boring. Can we skip this chapter? This is so lame. But then also in Matthew 1, 1 through 16, we see another genealogy. But what I think is uh, really interesting and kind of beautiful about this one is this particular verse. Samuel was the father of Boaz. Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now this is one of the few genealogies, this is the only genealogy of Jesus that actually includes women. And Ruth is there. This ordinary woman, this ordinary Moabite, an immigrant who was a widow, who could arguably have been considered an orphan, losing her father-in-law, gets to be a part for the rest of time of the genealogy of the Savior of the world. Through her ordinariness, God is able to weave his redemptive purposes simply because she did what God called her to do. And in turn, the people around her also were faithful. How powerful God's redemptive work is, church. Particularly if we allow it to take hold of our lives. That's what this ordinary story is about. This ordinary woman gets to be a part of this amazing story of redemption for the rest of time. Simply remaining faithful, being around people who also were faithful, being part of God's redemptive work, her story affects our lives as a result. This woman who, if you would have asked her, would have said, I'm just trying to figure out how to eat. I'm just trying to figure out how to live is a part of this amazing story because she did what God calls all of us to do, trusted that his redemptive work had her best interests in mind. See, she could have probably said, it would be better for me to stay in Moab, be better for me to stay away from those Israelites, they don't really like me that much. It could have been much better for Boaz to not take on the extra headache, to be adding debt to his life, adding responsibility, adding drama. It could have been better as human beings. We sometimes do a risk analysis. Is that a good idea? Should I do that? I don't want to do this. 
And sometimes, just like what Jesus tells us not to do, we get caught up in doing. We get caught up in worry and stress and trying to figure it out on our own. As a result, sometimes we can stifle God's redemptive work in our lives. Because sometimes God calls us to do things that, in our ordinariness, seem sort of silly and weird. Sometimes God calls us to do things that look different to other people. Sometimes God calls us to change our lives, to stop doing certain things, to stop living in sinfulness, to stop rebelling, to stop saying, I want to do it this way, when he says, no, you really need to do it this way. And if we would simply open up to God's redemptive work, we too can be part of this amazing, powerful redemption that this world desperately needs, as well as ourselves. So the story of Ruth, while ordinary, is powerful. It sets the stage, because generations later, a little baby would be born who would change the world and would invite us to be a part of that world-transforming love and grace. If only we choose to say yes, to say, I want to be a part of it as well. I want my life to be different as a result of encountering love and grace and redemption. But it starts by saying yes, by being willing to submit our will to God's will, by doing things like asking forgiveness when necessary, by, by changing how we live, by being a new creation, by praying and talking to God and saying, okay, what do you want me to be doing with my life? Because God weaves his redemptive purposes through the ordinariness of our lives when we are faithful to him, and he can do amazing things as a result. In a moment, church, we're going to participate. We're going to receive grace. We're going to take communion together. And we're going to, in a very tangible way, receive what is considered a means of grace. A physical way to feel God's love. Because what, what he did was sent his son, which is what we're anticipating. Which is what Advent is all about. To do something pretty gruesome, pretty heroic, but pretty dicey as well. If Boaz was Ruth's redeemer, Christ is all of our redeemers, and he invites us to be redeemed, but we have to choose to receive that redemption, to maybe live differently, to most certainly be transformed, to be a new creation, to say yes to grace, and let that grace change us into the person God has called us to be. The alternative is what a lot of people do. It's full of worry. It's full of stress. It's full of dis selfish decision-making that can be very destructive, which ultimately gets in the way of God's redemptive work, which ultimately distances us from God. Call it sin. Call it rebellion. Call it brokenness. Whatever you want to call it, it's when we choose to do things our way instead of saying yes to God's way. And God invites us into the story to be a part of it. And I would ask that as you prepare yourself for this offering or for this communion, that you would consider where you're at in that decision, where you're at in that struggle. What do you need to talk to God about in your life? What is getting in the way of receiving grace? How can you let the ordinariness of your life be this faithful opportunity to God for his redemptive work? to work in you, but also through you for the betterment of not only your own life, but also 
the life of the world. We're going to pray. We're going to talk a little bit more about communion, but when you are ready, I would invite you to come. You can come down this aisle on my left-hand side and receive grace, but prepare your hearts and minds to receive this amazing gift that God extends and freely offers to us and take seriously what it means to be redeemed. Let us pray. God, we thank you for stories like Ruth, these short little snippets of how you work amazing things through seemingly ordinary people's lives. God, will we be reminded that we can play such a part in your redemptive story as well, that you have called all of us to live a certain way, to be a certain type of people, to follow the direction, the guidance, the example of your son, Jesus. That you make it very plain and very clear what we're supposed to be doing with our lives, where our focus should be, the things that we should desire to be doing. But God, you also very clearly say that you help us be that person that you want us to be. You help us by drawing us closer to you, by redeeming us, by transforming us, and all you ask is that we would be willing to receive that gift, that transformation, that new way of living. That all we need to say is yes, but in doing so, we have to be bold enough, brave enough, righteous enough to act on that yes. To see the examples of people like Ruth, to be bold enough to, to trust you with our lives as evidence by how our lives are led. Like Ruth, God, there was no other way her story would have been made right if it not had been for a Redeemer, for a God who cared about what was going on in her life, who was familiar with the details and her needs. Would we have that much faith, God? In this season, it's so easy to focus on what we don't have. It's so easy to get distracted with what we think we need. It's so easy to lose track of what this season is really supposed to be focused on because of how well the world markets it for other designs and purposes. Would we not be distracted? Would we be reminded that you have given us an amazing gift and you just want us to open it and receive it and to be transformed by it, to be drawn closer to you, to be a part of your redemptive work, to be redeemed ourselves, you invite us, God. Are we willing to accept, to enter in, and to receive? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus was with his disciples. And they didn't fully grasp what he was saying, but he told them very plainly, when you eat the bread." Remember that it is broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And he said, this is a representation of my blood, which is going to be poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. Remember that I came to this planet for a purpose. And, and while they didn't get it, we have the benefit of hindsight. We can look back on the story and realize that we are invited in to the story that is full of grace if only we are willing to receive it.
So when you are ready to come and receive grace, I would ask that you do so. That you would contemplate what that means for your life and how you should live. That you would welcome grace and redemption into your life and take very seriously what it means for how you live tomorrow. When you're ready, I invite you to come.